In conversation with Jonathan Powell, a key negotiator of the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement and honorary professor at Queen's University Belfast. Hosted by Professor Richard English. A very warm welcome to this In Conversation, hosted here by the public engagement team at Queen's University Belfast. My name is Richard English, I'm Professor of Politics at Queen's and a fellow in the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice. And it's a real pleasure for me to introduce our distinguished guest today. Jonathan Powell is CEO of Intermediate, the charity which he founded in 2011 to work on conflict resolution around the world. His work has involved, among many other cases, negotiations with ETA in the Basque Country and negotiations in Colombia with the FARC. Between 1995 and 2007, Jonathan Powell was Chief of Staff to Tony Blair, and during 1997 to 2007, he was Chief British Negotiator on Northern Ireland, playing a huge role in the peace process here and the achievement of the 1998 Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Jonathan is an honorary professor in the Mitchell Institute here at Queen's, and his books include Great Hatred, Little Room, Making Peace in Northern Ireland, and Talking to Terrorists, How to End Armed Conflict. Today I'm going to pose a few questions to Jonathan Powell, after which he'll answer questions from you. So please, as the audience do, post questions through the Q&A function on the screens in front of you, and we'll get through as many of those as we can. Thank you. Jonathan, a very warm welcome back to Queen's. I'd like to begin by asking, if I could, about your assessment of the current state of the United Kingdom in terms of constitutional issues, Scottish independence, Northern Ireland border poll, English nationalism. Well, thank you, Richard, and thank you for inviting me back to Queen's. It's a delight to, to, to be here. Um, I do think that uh, over the last few years in politics, we've been dominated by single issues. We had Brexit for six odd years dominating our politics. We had covid for a year, and uh, if COVID is finally going to go away, I fear the next thing that will dominate us is going to be the disintegration of the United Kingdom. That is going to be the issue that will be the most salient in, po salient in politics. And I don't think people have necessarily thought enough about the way this interacts. They deal with it as Scotland, or they deal with it as Northern Ireland, or even now as Wales, rather than the way it interacts with each other. So I think what Boris Johnson is doing on Scotland is exactly the wrong thing. What he is doing is saying he won't agree to another referendum which is presumably absolutely what Nicola Sturgeon would like. The last thing she wants is a, a referendum now because she would not necessarily win it. If she lost another one, that would be catastrophic for the, the cause of Scottish nationalism. But by denying a referendum, by someone as unpopular as Boris Johnson in Scotland denying a referendum, uh, he's going to actually drive up support for nationalism. We know that's what happens during the uh, 80, 70s and 80s, the refusal to have devolution drove up support for devolution in Scotland. So what will happen is support for at least for a referendum, will go up and up as a result of what he's doing. And then Nicola Sturgeon, when she eventually gets her referendum, will have the maximum possible support she could have. Here in Northern Ireland, um, I remember coming here to Belfast with uh, Tony Blair just a couple of weeks after he was elected in 97 to go to the Balmoral Agricultural Fair uh, to make a speech in which he wanted to reassure unionists in particular. And he said that, he did not believe there would ever be a united Ireland in his lifetime. And I would certainly have agreed with him then when he made that statement. Now I'm not so certain. The impact of Brexit has been to drive a lot of Catholic opinion that was 
in favour of remaining in the United Kingdom to be less certain about that, the way that Brexit has been handled. Now, I think opinion polls still show there's a majority for remaining in the United Kingdom, but the uncertainty about that is affecting unionist and loyalist opinion here in Northern Ireland. And when we see the results of the census next year, presumably that's going to show the demography has moved on. So you're going to have the tension here of people demanding a border poll, particularly if opinion polls start to shift. And if the government agrees to a border poll in Northern Ireland, how can it refuse to have a referendum in Scotland? It makes no sense. The United Kingdom is built on consent. We're not like Spain, where there's a constitution and they can deny a referendum to the people of Catalonia. If a majority of people wish to leave the United Kingdom, or part of the United Kingdom, even if it's Wales, where opinion also seems to be shifting, then you will have to address that problem. But if Boris Johnson carries on refusing to have a referendum, this is going to be what dominates our politics right up to the next general election. Thank you. You mentioned Brexit there, Jonathan, five years on now from the Brexit referendum. What's your assessment of the current condition of the politics of Brexit, whether in terms of British opinion or in terms of its ongoing and changing effect on Northern Ireland? Well, Brexit, as far as uh, opinion in the United Kingdom, is people are trying to move on from Brexit, as you can notice. The Labour Party is trying not to even talk about Brexit at all or Europe. And the British government published a new um, study or new uh, review of its foreign policy in which it virtually doesn't mention Europe at all. It's quite extraordinary. For two millennia, the most important foreign policy for Britain has been its policy towards Europe. Now we don't have one. And a source in number 10, when asked about this, said that our policy towards Europe was a door ajar which is a, a, a very worrying notion that that's all we're going to do on Europe. We're not going to try and cooperate through the E3 or any other way. But the more interesting effect of Brexit is actually on uh, the coalitions of support for the political parties in Britain. What's happened is something that was happening anyway, uh, the, the reduction in the salience of class in British politics. Class is no longer a useful indicator of which way people will vote. Uh, that, that was happening anyway. What Brexit did was it kind of smashed the coalitions that existed. There was still a coalition of support for Labour, the so-called Red Wall. That has opened up that as the uh, Conservative Party, which is an extraordinarily adaptable party. It's not particularly interested in ideology. It's interested in power historically. And to get to power, they were happy to move to a new basis. And the new basis is essentially an English nationalist party. They don't care about Scotland. They don't actually care about Northern Ireland. The opinion polls that were run of the 200-odd thousand people who voted in the Tory party leadership election showed that they were perfectly happy to lose Scotland, lose Northern Ireland, if they could have Brexit. Um, so... If it identifies itself as an English Nationalist Party, then it is going to win in different constituencies. And the trouble is the Labour Party has not adapted to that. We have identity politics where people vote for, uh, on issues to do with their cultural identity, uh, not so much on their economic interests, but they also have their economic interests and hence the money being poured into infrastructure, particularly in the north of Britain. The Labour Party is still trying to hold together its old coalition of support. Labour Party voters, um, so working class voters, because they're working class voters, and that isn't going to work. But they fear that if they have just progressive voters, that won't be enough. So they've failed, not for the first time, to adapt as quickly as the Tory party has. And I think, again, what the politics over the next three or four years are, is what does the Labour Party stand for? What is it going to say on Europe? Because you'll have to say something on Europe. And most importantly, how does it build a coalition that can win? Brexit on Northern Ireland has been uh, even more destructive, uh, and it always was going to be. Uh, John Major and Tony Blair came uh, to Northern Ireland during the Brexit campaign, referendum campaign, and pointed out the dangers for Northern Ireland, that if the United Kingdom leaves the Single Market and Customs Union, there will have to be a border somewhere. There's nowhere in the world where you have a different uh, customs policy and a different regulatory policy and there's no border. The border could be on the island of Ireland or it could be in the Irish Sea, but it had to be somewhere. 
Theresa May came up with a slightly Heath-Robertson scheme where the whole of the United Kingdom remained in the customs union and therefore you wouldn't need a border in Northern Ireland. To her credit, she was trying to save uh, or reduce the impact on the Good Friday Agreement. That was rejected by the Tory party in the end and rejected here by the DUP and the unionists. Uh, and so when push came to shove and Boris Johnson had to get to an agreement, he decided the border would be in the Irish Sea and that's where he put it. And uh, in doing that, he deserted the unionists because this undoubtedly has an impact on identity for unionists. Just as a border on the island of Ireland would have an impact on nationalists, this has an impact on the, uh, um, uh, the perception of the unionists of being part of the United Kingdom. The initial uh, response from unionist parties was to say they were getting the best of both worlds. But as it really impacted from the beginning of this year onwards, mm -hmm. they then began to reacting to the uh, complaints of people who couldn't get plants in plants, uh, 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 garden centres and couldn't get um, British sausages and all the rest of it, those two things have come compounded, the identity issue and the practical issues. Uh, now we've had a certain amount of rhetoric from uh, uh, David Frost, the negotiator, at exactly the wrong time. We're just about to go into June and July, which in Northern Ireland are traditionally very tense seasons. To try and raise the temperature on this issue of the protocol just now seems to be an absolutely mad thing to do. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, one final question from me before moving to audience questions, if I may. I mentioned in my introduction your international work on conflict mediation and conflict resolution. One very conspicuous context which does require some kind of conflict resolution at the moment is clearly Israel-Palestine. Uh, what would be your thoughts, your advice, your reflections in terms of try to, trying to assuage difficulties there or improve things or deal with what's become, again, a very blood-stained conflict in Israel, particularly with regard to Gaza? It is a, a tragic situation at, at the moment in, in, in the Middle East, and uh, not much seems to be being done to, to, or not enough is being done to try and sort it out. When I left government uh, in 2007, I said that on the basis of what I'd learned in Northern Ireland, I thought we ought to be talking to uh, groups like the Taliban and uh, Hamas. And I was not surprisingly rubbished by my um, former colleagues uh, in the British government who said, no, 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 it's okay to talk to the IRA and the PLO, but we shouldn't be talking to Hamas and shouldn't be talking to the Taliban. We're now engaged in a full-scale negotiation with the Taliban in Afghanistan, and uh, we have a problem on Hamas because we've talked ourselves into a position where we won't talk to Hamas. Had we been in the situation where we wouldn't talk to Sinn Féin, we wouldn't have been able to get to a peace agreement here with a Good Friday Agreement. It was when we finally moved to an inclusive negotiation we were able to be successful. As long as European governments, the Americans, and everyone else can't speak to Hamas, it makes it very complicated to get to a, 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 a successful negotiation. You have to rely on the Egyptians, rely on the Qataris, and so on. So I think the first thing I would try and do is try and relax that silly rule and find a way that we can actually at least talk to all the parties. And then we need to find, I think, a new solution because the new and dangerous thing in, the, uh, in Israel is the tension now that's grown up between the Arab Israelis uh, and Jewish Israelis. And that hasn't really happened before. And a bit like if you, uh, you think back to the uh, time of Bombay Street here, you had two communities who were living alongside each other, not ideally, but not actually fighting. Bombay Street hit a nerve and set off a intercommunal dispute that we're still suffering from. We still have the peace walls in Belfast and elsewhere. And the problem for Israel is once they've hit that, if they can't pull that back, it could go on for a very, very long period of time and they'll find it very difficult to settle. So I think they really need to try and draw some lessons, not just from Northern Ireland, but elsewhere where you get into intercommunal disputes of that sort. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, we've already touched on a wide-ranging 
set of issues on which you're expert. We've got a number of questions coming in from the audience. The first couple of them do deal with something which you've referred to in terms of Northern Ireland, which is the future of unionism. Um, and the first question is this. How does unionism reinvent itself and develop a broader future-facing agenda and philosophy? As at the moment, the questioner says, it seems to be losing all sense of identity and risks becoming the political equivalent of the Galapagos Islands, <laughs> a place occupied by numerous species that time forgot. I think there is a problem with unionism becoming very reactive. Uh, it's easy to know what unionism is against and harder to know what unionism is for. Uh, and of course, now there are two new leaders of the two unionist parties, the DUP and the UUP, so they have an opportunity to set out a positive vision rather than simply saying no to everything. Um, and I think they can start with the protocol because we have the protocol. Uh, both leaders have said they'd like to get rid of the protocol, but neither of them have suggested what it could be replaced by. And that's not a tenable position. You can't just say, ditch the protocol and we'll have nothing. Because as I said, there has to be a border somewhere. Uh, so I think one of the first steps would be sensible is to not box themselves into a corner by saying, we've got to get rid of the protocol, because either they're going to lose, because the protocol will remain, and they'll have a grievance, uh, or they won't be able to accept the changes that can be made in the protocol. So if David Frost stops his rhetorical attacks on the EU and actually concentrates on the negotiation and tries to show some flexibility, if the EU shows the necessary flexibility and makes the protocol work, removes those practical problems that are dogging the people of Northern Ireland, then I think that would be uh, an opportunity for unions to say, OK, we'll live with the protocol if it's done on these terms, rather than simply saying no to things. It would be interesting to see some positive ways forward. And this is going to become particularly important if unification becomes an issue. If demography means uh, uh, unification will be on the agenda in the next few years, next decade, say, then I think not addressing it isn't really going to solve the problem. I can see why it makes people very concerned and worried, but then let's talk about it rather than trying to ignore it. Because ignoring it, just wishing it will never happen, is not a way of removing those concerns, which could lead to violence uh, if and when we get to a, a border poll. Thank you. You mentioned new leadership in unionism, and you've mentioned potential for violence. Question here from a, a PhD candidate, Darren Litter, and the question is, what do you think about the new UUP leader, Doug Beattie's call for the disbandment of the Loyalist Communities Council? Well, I have to admit that it has taken a very long time for the Loyalist paramilitaries to transition uh, out of existence. The IRA, we hope, has gone away. Um, isn't it time that the Loyalists also uh, thought about going away? Now, I think it would be a mistake at the moment to wrap up the LCC because I think it is a useful political voice for loyalists. And I think there's been a problem we've tended to ignore loyalists mm -hmm. uh, historically. Even when we were in government, I'm not sure we did enough to help loyalist communities. You have these very, very deprived pockets uh, of people who feel that they've lost out from the agreement, that their identity is under threat. And that's what's led to, to some of the rioting that we've seen recently. So I think engaging with the loyalists politically is a sensible thing to do. I think the police need to deal with the criminality, and it's obviously a very serious problem, and it's very difficult to deal with, because they, but they need to find a, a handle to, on it. But then we need to offer a political perspective. You know, when David Irvin was alive, he played such a crucial role in the Good Friday negotiations, and his loss was a very really major loss. But a political voice that spoke for loyalism, because the DUP doesn't really speak for loyalism, it speaks for unionism, but not for them. If they had a voice, that would be so much better. And just as I've said, I think you need to include Hamas and be prepared to speak to Hamas if you're going to get to peace in the Middle East, I'm sure you must speak to the loyalists as well. That does not mean to say you accept their criminality, you have to deal with the criminality, and it doesn't mean the transition goes on forever. These groups do need to disappear and become irrelevant, but in doing so, we need to help those who want to get onto a political track.
Thank you. One thing, the next question uh, relates to something which the loyalists would have a very strong interest in or interest in avoiding. This is from the journalist Declan de Braden, and the question is, would a majority vote for Scottish independence make a united Ireland more likely? Well, that's why I was talking about the interaction between these two things. I don't think people have thought about it enough. It can go both ways, that if there is, if you start seeing opinion polls in Northern Ireland showing majority for a united Ireland, that's going to have an impact in Scotland and whether Scotland can have a referendum. And if a referendum is allied, allowed or if uh, opinion polls show um, uh, support for independence rising still further, then of course that will have an impact here. It's already, both of those are having an impact in Wales, where you're beginning to see some support for, uh, at least for greater devolution and possibly even for independence in Wales, which has never really been there in the past. It's, it's still a very long way to go. So yes, I think these two things interact on each other. Thank you. Another PhD student, uh, Eleanor Williams, uh, Queen's PhD student. Thanks for a fascinating talk, Jonathan. What were the key hurdles in the negotiations between FARC and the Colombian government? Um, well, it was a very, very long and very bloody conflict. It went on for nearly 60 years. Uh, 250 million people, more or less, were killed. Uh, millions were displaced. And it seemed like one of those conflicts that was never going to be resolved. And I think what happened was really the same two things that happen when most conflicts are resolved. Uh, it's true here in Northern Ireland too. You get to a stage where there's something the academics call a perceived mutually hurting stalemate. Now, that's not just a stalemate. Uh, you know, I went to Libya for David Cameron and I thought, yes, there's a stalemate. Um, we've got a chance. But we didn't at that stage have a chance because although there was a stalemate, it wasn't mutually hurting. People could make advances. Hafta thought he could win in Libya. What uh, you got to in, in Colombia was after uh, President Uribe's campaign against the FARC, uh, headed by his defense minister, Santos, the FARC were definitely on the back foot, but the communities were still hurting in, in Colombia. So the demand was there to actually try and get to a peace negotiation. Neither side thought it could win more by military means. President Santos says that he knew he could keep um, pressing the uh, FARC militarily, but he knew he wasn't going to defeat them completely militarily any more than we were going to defeat the IRA completely militarily. Mm -hmm. So you had that, that motive force, that ability to start a talks, and you had political leadership. The President Santos came in and decided he was going to reach out to Venezuela as his initial thing, which was uh, President Chavez of, uh, uh, of Venezuela. And the FARC were based in Venezuela. The uh, uh, Venezuelan government had been supporting the FARC. Uribe had threatened to invade Venezuela to, to deal with the FARC. But by reaching out to, to, um, Santos to Chavez and getting Chavez to help on the peace process, helping them to propel the FARC into the negotiations made a transformative difference. Um, then we had the whole complication of getting the FARC out of the jungle to the negotiating table. And I think probably by the end of the secret talks, which lasted about six months in Havana, when we agreed the basic agreement, which was the agenda, I think the crucial thing was when the FARC agreed to talk about weapons. They'd never in the past agreed to discuss DDR. Uh, and they nearly walked out of the talks at that stage, but the Colombian government insisted they had, that had to be on the agenda. Once they'd accepted that, uh, and the talks went ahead. I think there was a good chance of getting to a success. But as always with these processes, there are ups and downs and you think it's going to fail and it takes so long and so on. So there's never quite a definitive moment until you get to sign it. And even then there, we had the referendum, which the government lost on, on, and we thought the whole thing was over. And we, yet yeah, we managed to get it back.
And it's a long-term process always, rather than something which finishes at a key moment in, in finality, isn't it? Absolutely. Peace process, people forget. Peace process aren't something that happened. You know, we thought when we took off in our helicopters from Castle Buildings in uh, Stormont in 98 uh, that we'd finished dealing with Northern Ireland. We were sadly mistaken. It was another nine years before the institutions were up and running on a permanent basis. Thank you. Here's a question which brings us back to what you were describing in terms of the UK's politics. The question is, does the fragility of the union owe as much to the rise of English nationalism as to the will of the devolved regions? Um, I think they interact with each other, not surprisingly. I think that support for uh, independence in Scotland has been growing, and that's why the SNP has uh, had um, uh, stronger and stronger showings. I think in some ways COVID has shown also that different parts of the United Kingdom be, can be governed in different ways successfully. Scotland has seemed to have had a more successful COVID campaign than Boris Johnson has. I think having a government with someone like Boris Johnson in it who is particularly unpopular in Scotland, then again, increases support for independence in Scotland, just as Margaret Thatcher had the same impact, increasing support for devolution. So I think all of those things do uh, drive up uh, that support. And the fact that it's very patently obvious that the, the British Conservative Party isn't any longer a unionist party. It is clearly a nationalist party. That then also uh, raises the issue of identity. And here in Northern Ireland, we're very familiar with the issue of identity. It's now becoming a real issue in the rest of the United Kingdom too. Thank you. There's a question from Dr. Thomas Leahy who says, great talk. Do you think, he asks, do you think there are signs that Hamas would accept a negotiated political compromise? Um, I think there are, there, are there are a number of signs that mean that may be true. Uh, firstly, it's clear they are very much willing to have a ceasefire and it's the Israeli side that appears not to be agreeing to a ceasefire. Secondly, they had agreed to the elections, which uh, uh, the um, PLO cancelled. Uh, the elections would have given them almost certainly more seats in the, uh, in, in the West Bank and, and elsewhere. Uh, and thirdly, I think over time they have matured, uh, and if they did win the elections in Palestine, would be in a position to negotiate. Now, they would be very difficult negotiating partners. Um, they would be obviously more extreme than the PLO. But at least then you ha would have one united Palestinian voice. The trouble is trying to make peace if you're not even talking to one part of the Palestinian community. That's never going to, going to work. So I think if it may, may be this horrific crisis will trigger some things that we didn't expect. And it may possibly trigger a chance to go back to the Middle East peace process in a way that uh, hasn't been possible for the last, well, certainly for the period of the Trump presidency, but really even further back than that, possibly right back to Camp David. Thank you, Jonathan. A couple of questions now on Northern Ireland, if I may. Uh, this is from a Queen's colleague, Professor Kieran McAvoy, and it's about legacy regarding the Northern Ireland conflict. And Kieran's question is, two weeks ago, you called for a new truth and reconciliation process in the Belfast Telegraph. The question is, how does ripping up a hard-won agreement, the Stormont House agreement, help? This is a really difficult question, and um, I don't claim to have the re revealed truth on this subject. Uh, but I do think I've learned something from the other peace processes I've been involved in. Now, when we, uh, we never managed to deal with the issue of drawing a line under the past when we left government. We set up the Badly Eames Commission before we left, but it reported after we'd left, and they were unable to find a consensus on how to have a truth and reconciliation process of the South African kind. But I have observed that ever since then, we've had the problem of Jerry Adams being arrested, uh, I understand uh, there's an arrest of, of Martin McGuinness's brother recently. Mm -hmm. there's, uh, you have the soldiers being prosecuted and so on. So there, there are a series of different uh, things that keep dragging us back into the past. And that 
it's really problematic when you're trying to implement a peace process. So just carrying on with the maximum desire for prosecutions doesn't necessarily help, particularly when those prosecutions fail, because as time passes, it's less and less likely you're going to be able to succeed at these prosecutions, however much money you spend on them, however much you reinvestigate them. And that will actually make people more um, discontented rather than satisfy them, those victims who uh, suffered so much. Uh, I noticed that when people show the most uh, uh, emotion, the most joy about things, is when you get something like the Bloody Sunday report and then David Cameron actually admitting the responsibility for it, and more recently with Bally Murphy. So I do think uh, there has to be something that draws the poison from the past, but I'm not sure it's continuing prosecutions after prosecutions, particularly if they keep failing. And I've noticed two things from other negotiations I've been involved in. Firstly, you need to find a way of drawing a line under the conflict, not dragging back into the past. And an amnesty doesn't really do that. If you just have an amnesty, uh, people, uh, the victims in particular, feel that they have been uh, ignored. But equally, if you just carry on prosecutions, as I say, you get dragged back in. And that's why other countries have opted for variants of a truth and reconciliation process. Now, that may be too difficult here. People may not be ready yet to tell the truth about what happened in the past. So maybe that's not achievable. What we had in, in Colombia was uh, a, a transitional justice system. And it was not, not a perfect transitional justice system by any means. And many victims feel very aggrieved that FARC guerrillas will get off with uh, very light sentences because of it. And likewise, uh, soldiers who were involved in massacres will get away with things they shouldn't get away with. Uh, and they had to have that because uh, Colombia, like us, is subject to the International Criminal Court. And the International Criminal Court will prosecute uh, if the governments don't prosecute in those circumstances. So you need to have a transitional justice system that finds a way of drawing a line. And it seems to be working in the first steps in, in Colombia. Because in the end, what you've got to balance is you have a duty to the victims of the past. You can't let the victims go without knowing what happened to, to live with that uncertainty. But you also have a, di a duty to victims of the future. You don't want to have more victims happening. So that you can't be absolutist about justice in the past, and you shouldn't be, but you shouldn't ignore it. So you have to have a balance between the two. And I think in future negotiations, that will be a transitional justice system. We didn't have that in the case of Northern Ireland, and we probably should have done. And we now need to find a way of drawing a line, but allowing the families to get the information that they want, which is not necessarily going to come through prosecutions. Thank you, Jonathan. This is a question from Councillor Ray McKim, who says, as someone new to politics, I see my responsibility to engage with all parts of my community. What do you propose to build trust with the groups involved in violence? Well, uh, that, again, is always the most difficult issue. And we were criticised for talking to the men of violence. I've been in this hall with Seamus Mallon criticising me for uh, uh, talking to the men of violence. But if we hadn't talked to the men of violence, it's not obvious to me that we'd have got them mm -hmm. to stop their violence. Uh, and certainly elsewhere in the world, that's what I see happening, whether it is with ETA in Spain or with, uh, in Mozambique with uh, uh, Renamo. You, you ha if you want to bring a conflict to an end, you have to engage with those people who are in the conflict. But if you do it, you're likely to be, to be criticised. And, and when you do engage with them, you should not be encouraging them to carry on with the violence. What you're trying to do is bring the violence to an end. You shouldn't be relativist about it and say, it's OK, they're carrying on with the violence. You should condemn the violence and try and find a way of drawing them into a negotiation. And it's not an easy thing to do, to get that balance right. So I think turning your back on people uh, who are engaged in violence is a mistake. Pandering to them is a mistake. But finding a way of drawing them into a process that ends the violence is worth pursuing. Thank you, Jonathan. Here's a question where the questioner says, Jonathan has written about his original desire 
to become a Labour MP. Would he not consider realising that now, given Labour's need for more compelling representatives? I think I'm far too old, sadly, to, uh, to be a Labour MP. But I do think the Labour Party does face a challenge. My former boss, Tony Blair, wrote a very... Uh, articulate long piece in the New Statesman uh, last week exactly about this question of what the Labour Party needs to do. And I think it is right the Labour Party does need to make clear it stands for something. Mm. Now, uh, Kiyosami is quite right not to set out a very detailed um, policy platform at this stage two and a half years before an election. That would be a crazy thing to do. But equally, if you're not clear about what you're standing for, uh, then you're not going to succeed. And so he's got to get this difficult balance right between um, uh, articulating how they are different from the Conservative Party, what they stand for, without a detailed policy agenda. And it's a very difficult thing to do. And some of it comes to character. And he's had this difficult period where he hasn't been able to engage with the British electorate because he's been um, locked up under COVID. And so he has a chance to reintroduce himself to the British public, which not all politicians get. And, and he may well be able to succeed. I also note that everyone now thinks Boris Johnson is going to apparently be in power for another 10 years if you read the newspapers. I point out, just a year ago, everyone thought he was finished and about to be thrown out because his unpopularity after uh, Cummings's jaunt to, um, uh, to Durham was... Uh, he, he was at rock bottom. And I think he'll be at rock bottom again before too long and everyone will say, Keir Starmer's a genius. So these things go backwards and forwards in politics. Relating to Boris Johnson, there's a question here from Ian Thomas who says, is it accurate, is it fair to describe Boris Johnson as a British Trump? I think it's a bit unfair on Trump. Um, the, uh, he, doesn't, he hasn't got the sort of imagination that Trump had. Trump has really personally transformed American politics. Boris Johnson is more riding in the coattails of doing that. He has moved the British uh, Conservative Party into being an English nationalist party, but that was kind of by default almost, rather than by a, by a clever design, a design of his own. I do think that the populism that is introduced to politics, and particularly um, well, two aspects of it in particular that bother me. One is trampling all over the rules that govern the British Constitution. We do not have a written constitution, and our constitution has always rested on people sticking to unwritten rules. Uh, and if we don't do that, if we have governments that refuse to do that, we will then find ourselves having those laws set by the courts or not having those laws at all and find our political system undermined. The second problem, I think, is to do with the truth and some of these sleaze allegations. You know, if in, my, in my day, if we'd had the stuff about the uh, number 10 flat mm. of that sort, we would have been in really, really serious trouble and probably out of power. Now it seems okay to do those things, to not register your interests, to lie about things, and that does undermine politics in a fairly fundamental way. Unless we have uh, some attachment, that you can't have your truth. There has to be a truth. And if we don't have that in politics, politics doesn't really work. Uh, so I think what he's done there to undermine politics is really quite dangerous. And in a way, worse than Trump. Trump is gone. America is recovering under Biden. Uh, what we've got with Brexit and Boris Johnson, I fear, is to stay for a bit. Thank you. Uh, there's a question here which relates to Northern Ireland and Scotland, and I'm going to move to a question on Wales, if I may. Th this question is from Bob Creehay, and he says, do you not see a risk to conflate the Northern Ireland situation with that of Scotland? They're very different challenges. Oh, absolutely. No, uh, sorry, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I often get accused of going around the world saying that Northern Ireland peace is an example for Afghanistan, for Burma. It isn't. They're very different uh, situations and you have very different lessons. And Scotland and Northern Ireland, of course, are very different. What I was talking about was more the way they will interact with each other because they are both parts of the United Kingdom. So if something happens in Northern Ireland, you can't very easily ref uh, agree to a referendum in Northern Ireland and refuse one in Scotland. 
it doesn't see how that works. So that's the point I'm making, that they interact with each other, not that they're the same, they're extraordinarily different challenges. Take, for example, the issue of a border, which will come up in the case of Scotland if they go for independence. We'll have to have a border because Scotland will want to rejoin the EU. There'll have to be a, a hard border on the islands of, uh, between England and Scotland. And, and that's going to be difficult to introduce. But it's a very different problem from here because of the history of the violence, the history of the border, the issue of identity. So it's a difficult economic issue and practical issue in, in, between England and Scotland. Here it's a quite different uh, existential type of issue uh, that would, would literally undermine the Good Friday Agreement. So absolutely agree. They're very different. Thank you, Jonathan. And this is a question from Wales about Wales. The Welsh First Minister has urged the government to give Wales increased home rule. Do you think that will work? Um, some people argue that it was a terrible mistake uh, for Tony Blair's government to uh, allow devolution in the way that it happened, and that that's what's really been a slippery slope to independence. I have to say I completely disagree. I think that if uh, there'd been another Tory government still standing out against um, uh, devolution in Scotland, we would have got to independence a whole lot quicker. I think the best guarantee against uh, independence is to have, or not guarantee, the best way of avoiding independence is to have a form of devolution. And I think what Gordon Brown has set out recently about ideas of greater devolution in Scotland, for example, and I think the same will be true in Wales, uh, is the best way of avoiding people going to more dramatic uh, solutions. So I think that uh, it's quite right in the case of Wales that greater devolution, assuming it's demanded by the Welsh people, uh, not if it's imposed on them, would make more sense. We tried uh, imposing devolution on the people of the northeast of, of England when we had a referendum under John Prescott uh, there, but I got a fairly... Uh, fairly uh, testy reaction from the people, partly because, as I remember John Prescott coming to tell us rather sheepishly halfway through the referendum campaign, he'd recorded messages on a new technological system to go out to all the voters saying, vote for a, a devolution in the Northeast. And it had all been set to go out by an automatic polling system, a phone system. Unfortunately, he said it at the wrong time. It went out at three in the morning, four in the morning, and five in the morning. So if we'd ever had a chance of winning that referendum, that's when it went. How to lose votes. Yeah. <laughs> the next question, Jonathan, re re returns back to your international work and, and the, me the mediation. And the question is this. In conflicted situations, how important are perceived threats to identity as impediments to resolution? Um, an awful lot of the conflicts I work on, identity is a, is a central issue. If you think, for example, of Myanmar, uh, the current conflict obviously is, is uh, a coup and trying to overturn the coup. But the peace process we were working on before that was all to do with identity. The, the Karen people, uh, the Kachin people, and of course the Rohingyas see themselves, their identity is enormously important. And if you don't take that identity and you can't address that identity, uh, you will never get to a settlement. And yet identity is a very, very difficult issue uh, to deal with. Even in Afghanistan, you have very different identities for the Tajik people, the Uzbeks, uh, the Hazaras, the, the Shia minority. If you can't find a way in which those different identities can live alongside each other, then you're very unlikely to have a stable political future. So we normally find ourselves wrestling with ways to um, uh, allow people to live feeling that they have different identities, but those identities are respected. And, of course, that was the central issue here in, in Northern Ireland. We couldn't resolve the issue of a united Ireland or a united kingdom because some people wanted one and some people wanted another. And the Good Friday Agreement, in the end, is an agreement to disagree. It didn't settle the issue, but it allowed people to have whichever identity they wanted while living within Northern Ireland. They could feel Irish, they could feel British, they could feel both. And that's been the secret of the success of the Good Friday Agreement over the last 23 years, and that's what Brexit threatened when it came in. 
Thanks, Jonathan. Another area of the world where identity politics and conflict have been incredibly strong and where there have been attempted peace processes is one you've talked about already, which is Israel-Palestine. There's a question here from PhD student Emmanuel Kwasi about Israel and says, the question is, given the unfolding Israel-Palestine conflict, would you agree that the Trump-Kushner-Israel-Palestine peace plan has failed? Well, their original plan failed, which is why they moved to Plan B. I mean, they were trying to get to a, the, the grand deal between Israel and Palestine, but they managed to alienate the Palestinians pretty early on. So they gave up on that and went for something different, which was the so-called outside-in plan. I, I mean, I don't think that getting relations between Israel and the Gulf countries is a bad thing. I think that's a, a good thing. It's worth trying relations with Morocco. But it's never going to solve the problem because it's not going to make the grievances of the Palestinians go away. And bombing them doesn't help do that either, nor do riots uh, where right-wing mobs come in and attack uh, Israeli Arabs. So in the end, that issue of identity is going to have to be addressed uh, uh, in Israel if we're going to get to peace. And I think that's what's coming clear from this conflict, that the problem was not solved by building the wall. The problem was not solved by making deals with the, the Gulf countries. It can only be solved by actually addressing uh, the concerns, the grievances, and the interests, and the identity of the Palestinian people and the Israeli people. Thank you, Jonathan. A couple of questions bringing us back to Northern Ireland and Ireland. Um, first question, do you think there is merit in a joint sovereignty approach to Northern Ireland? The devil would be in the detail, the questioner says, but could it be an innovative option for our divisions? Well, the history of joint sovereignty goes back a long way uh, uh, in the case of Northern Ireland and never really successfully was addressed. But what I think is interesting is what, if you th think about, if it is possible there's going to be a united Ireland, I worry that no one wants to address that issue. For understandable reasons, the Irish government, this current Irish government says it will not address the issue while, during its term. I totally understand, I think it's the right answer. Uh, and of course, unionists don't want to address united Ireland because they don't want to acknowledge the possibility that it might happen or they'll be accused of being a Lundy. And yet, if we drift towards uh, a border pole, which, as I say, I think is probable at some stage, it's not certain, but probable. What is that vote going to be about? Because what would a united Ireland look like? I mean, would there still be a Stormont in a united Ireland? Would there be protections for minority rights? It would be a different Ireland you'd be talking about. And if you just have a vote and then try and work out what's going to happen after that, particularly if it's a very close vote, it's going to be very, very difficult. So I'm not sure joint sovereignty is the answer, but I do think somehow engaging in a dialogue with all the communities uh, to think about what could happen in these circumstances is really important. And related to that, what you just said there, Jonathan, this next question says, what role do you think Great Britain should play in the event of a united Ireland? Um, well, I, I, that, that would, our position has always been, uh, uh, since 91, when Peter Brooks said that we have no selfish strategic or economic interest in Northern Ireland, is that we want whatever the majority of people in Northern Ireland want. So if a majority of people in Northern Ireland want a united Ireland, we would obviously help try and bring that about in the most peaceful, successful and stable way. But not talking about it is not going to be the, the best way of, uh, of achieving that. Now, Constitution Union, University of London has done some good work on this, mm. but I've seen very little work actually done by politicians on the island of Ireland, and they're the ones who in the end are going to have to make some of these decisions. Here, next question is, what do you see as the implications for NATO and the UK in NATO? of the issues you've been talking about. What do you see as implications for NATO and for the UK in NATO of the issues you've been talking about? Um, well, the, the, my actual worry about the UK and NATO is we seem to be 
if you look at the review, uh, Foreign Policy and Defence Review, we have decided that NATO is our European policy. Uh, and this is a, a, a very odd thing if that's our only approach to, to Europe. We, we really need a bigger Europe policy than that. So I'm glad that we're spending more money on defence. I'm glad that we, uh, well, I'm worried about the cuts in the actual numbers of soldiers because it means we won't be able to project force. Uh, I'm glad that we are committing ourselves to NATO and to NATO uh, standing up for European security. Uh, and particularly if there's going to be a pivot to Asia by the United States, I think it will be, that will be increasingly important. So I'm not worried about our future in, in NATO and all the future of NATO. Uh, what I'm worried about more is that we're just playing with one club, whereas we should actually have a policy towards the EU as well as a policy inside NATO. Thanks. So a question now about Irish republicanism and then a question about Ulster loyalism. The first is about republicanism, and it says you produced a very powerful 2017 Newsnight piece on the late Martin McGuinness. To what extent do you think Northern Ireland politics continues to suffer from his absence? Um, well, Martin was a, a very considerable leader, I think, uh, as was, in my view, Ian Paisley and David Trimble. Um, I think they all deserve a huge amount of credit for what's happened in Northern Ireland, the successes in Northern Ireland. What was striking to me was that the it seemed to me the most successful government in Northern Ireland was the government with Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley in it. And you wouldn't have thought that would be the case. Here were two sworn enemies. Uh, you'd have thought that would be a very, very contested government where things wouldn't happen. But on the contrary. And it happened from more or less the first moment that they met, that they sat down on that sofa in Stormont and started joking straight away. Martin was very sensible about deferring to Ian Paisley, to being very human with him. Uh, and, and Paisley was very good at reacting to the way Martin worked. And that was a successful government. You had strong leaders on both sides in the parties, people who'd been through the bloody troubles and, and, and been responsible for them on both sides. But they, they, they came together and managed to make a government work. What slightly worries me is a generation that's come after who were affected by the troubles but weren't involved in them the same way, haven't managed to make the government work so, so well. And I worry that the institutions will be pulled down again before we get to the elections next year, if we have weak leadership on various sides. I think there needs to be strong leadership and a determination to keep the uh, institutions in place, because I worry if they're pulled down again, I don't know that they'll ever come back up. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just hope that people won't, in the context of the protocol and the controversy over that, um, take that step. And what you're saying, Jonathan, reinforces the profound importance of, of personal relationships there between McGuinness and Paisley, but the relationships you built up in the negotiations Tony Blair and Bertie Hearn, Albert Reynolds and John Major, those personal relationships have been crucial throughout, haven't they? Yes. Not unrelated to that, this is a question from John Topping, and this is about loyalism. From your experience, what do you make of the rising temperatures regarding community tensions and loyalist violence, and how do we stop it spilling over? Well, I'm glad that loyalist violence has, has settled down again, and I hope that no one will do anything to provoke it again uh, in the next couple of months, when, of course, we'll all be most vulnerable to it. But I do think... Uh, there needs to be a more of an engagement with the loyalist communities and trying to address some of the grievances that they have economically, uh, socially and politically. There is, they don't have a political voice, and I think uh, ignoring them is a mistake. Trying to find a way of bringing them into mainstream politics of... You know, when I the statistic, which I believe to be true, that it has the lowest level of educational attainment in Europe is in the loyalist enclaves. Mm -hmm. Uh, in Northern Ireland. That is a really worrying statistic. The long-term unemployment in those enclaves is a really worrying uh, problem. And I don't think we've done enough. We didn't do enough in government, and I don't think enough has been done since to address that problem. Westminster and Whitehall thinks that's a problem for Stormont, and Stormont thinks it's not their problem. Someone is going to have to address that issue 
uh, or else we will risk long-term having that problem again. But in the short term, I think the best thing is just not to provoke people with over the protocol to, to, to work sensibly between the two sides to find as flexible a way of implementing the protocol as they can so the practical problems are removed. Thanks. You mentioned Westminster. This is a question here from second-year undergraduate Alex here at Queen's. Um, thanks for the discussion. Do you feel there needs to be reform in the Westminster system to convince Scotland and Northern Ireland, for that matter, to remain in the UK? Do you feel there needs to be reform in the Westminster system to convince Scotland and Northern Ireland, for that matter, to remain in the UK? Yes. And I also actually think there needs to be reform in the Westminster system for other reasons as well. I, w I wouldn't always have been a fan of proportional representation, but I'm now beginning to be persuaded that is going to be necessary uh, if we're not going to end up in a one-party state because it's very hard to see how the Labour Party wins without uh, a major presence in Scotland, which it seems difficult to imagine is coming back anytime soon. And if you look at the Greens in Germany and the success they've had of becoming the new progressive party in the centre, so our parties tend to die over time and you need to be able to replace them. What happens in America is they, they do replace the parties, they just stick to the same names. The, the very new Trump party is not the Republican party of old. In, in Britain, that doesn't happen quite so much. The parties are more ossified. Tories are more flexible, as I said earlier. So I think there needs to be a reform of the Westminster system to make it more responsive uh, through, um, uh, through proportional representation, which would then also help with the question of Scotland, Wales and elsewhere, feeling that their, their views are not fully taken into account or their weight is not taken into account relative to, um, uh, to the rest of England. So that's the reform I would go for. Probably also a reform in the way Westminster works, which has become very stultified over time. Mm. And nor am I a big fan of the House of Lords, but th there are many reforms I would go for. Thank you. Uh, we're moving now to the point where we're going to have to close the event pretty soon. Sadly, we've got a huge number of questions. But what I'm going to do is, is put two questions, which in some ways are on the same theme, one about Scotland and one about Ireland. Uh, and this will have to be the final question put to you. So John Dunlop makes the point that the people of Scotland may have a referendum, but they may not vote for independence. Many problems exist now which did not exist in the last referendum. So there's a chance of a Scottish referendum, but the vote going to remain in the UK. And, an, and another question which says, what would happen if the majority of people in the Republic of Ireland did not want a united Ireland? So I suppose two, two, two yeah. referendums which don't go in favour, yeah. if you like. Could, could you comment on those two? Please? Yes, absolutely. Those are very good points. And I think John, John Dunlop's point is absolutely right. that, that uh, the way that Boris Johnson has approached the issue of uh, a referendum in Scotland has actually helped Nicola Sturgeon avoid answering the difficult questions. And there are some extremely difficult questions, starting with the border. Because now that Scotland, now the United Kingdom is out of the EU, uh, it's no longer about Scotland remaining in the EU. It would be Scotland going back into the EU while, the UK remain, while England remains out. So that creates the problem of the border. It creates the problem of the euro, which happened last time. The North Sea oil revenue has declined to virtually nil. So it's a very different context than the last referendum. That's not a reason for not having the referendum, but it is certainly a possibility uh, that if, a, if this time a good campaign was run uh, for, uh, or a better campaign was run for um, Remain, remaining in the United Kingdom, it could still be won. And it's not a given that there will be independence. Mm. But the worst way of getting there is to build up support for independence by saying no to a referendum until you eventually give in and allow a referendum to happen. That's my, my point on Scotland. On, on um, uh, uh, in Ireland, I suppose it is a paradoxical thing that it is clear that quite a lot of the younger generation in Ireland are not necessarily that keen on unification and certainly not that keen on addressing it quickly and they see what the costs will be and who's going to be bearing the costs in those circumstances. So I, 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 I think that is a very uh, pertinent point and it would be pretty paradoxical if you ran two referenda as we did for the Good Friday Agreement alongside each other and the people of Ireland, vote, the Republic of Ireland voted against and the people of Northern Ireland voted for. 
in the end, I don't think that's likely to happen. What I think is the most likely thing, if this ever happens, is that you get a very close vote in the mm -hmm. north, and that's where your trouble will begin. Which will be complex. Yeah. We're going to have to bring the event to an end. Many thanks to the public engagement team at Queen's for organising the event so well. Many thanks to you, the audience, for the questions. We got through as many as we could. It's a wonderful set of questions, wide-ranging and informative. I hope that you'll be able to join us for future events at Queen's, and we look forward to having you back in person as that's possible. But, Jonathan, you can tell from the range of the questions how interested people always are to hear your views. It's, as always, been wonderful hearing your insights, your expertise, your wide-ranging reflections. We look forward to having you back again many times to Queen's, but for a wonderful in-conversation, I'd like to express our profound thanks to Jonathan Powell. Thank you. For more in this series, subscribe to Queen's University Belfast Shaping a Better World podcast on all the main podcast platforms.